If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. Well, what's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about business. We're talking about what does it look like to run a successful games company in today's world. Things have changed in the last 15 minutes, let alone in the last 10, 12, 15 years. And so how in the world would, would you start a company? Would you run a company in today's world? And we're talking to Rob Doherty from Wise Wizard Games. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to, uh, nice to be on. Thank you. Yeah, man, really glad to have you here. You're a guy that's been running a company for a while, several years now. I remember uh, meeting you back at Origins several, several years ago, and I think it was the first time y'all were at Origins, right, when your, your company was getting off the ground. And it's been so cool to see your company evolve and grow and, and just do these really big Kickstarters and put out some amazing games into the world. Hero Realms, one of my favorite games. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Star Realms. It's, it's not as much of my thing. I like the hero version. I like the fantasy. I like, you know, dragons <laughs> and swords and that kind of stuff. But I've played a ton of Star Realms as well. And you've, you've designed some really cool uh, games, put some cool games out into the marketplace. And I'm just excited to talk about how do you do that from a company standpoint, right? And uh, But anyway, before we get into it. Let's talk about your bio a little bit, your, your story, like personally, and then we'll talk about your company story in a minute. But how'd you get into games, game design, all that kind of thing? Sure, sure. So I have loved games uh, ever since I was a kid. I, uh, you know, when I was uh, little, I would, uh, you know, beg my family to play like Monopoly with me or, you know, basically uh, uh, any game that I could convince people to sit down and play. When I got, uh, you know, when I was like uh, probably around seven or eight, I discovered like uh, Risk and, you know, I try and get my friends to play uh, and my family to play and you know, basically play games as, you know, as, as much as I could. And I started like dabbling with games, messing with them, like making like uh, custom, uh, you know, making variants, uh, some, uh, sometimes uh, intentionally making variants, uh, sometimes uh, a process of like, getting a game and being too impatient to play and sort of like glancing at the rule book and being like, Oh, I know what they're doing here. And then like, you know, and then uh, rushing into a game and then going back and discovering, no, that, that's not actually how the game worked, but I like my method better. You know? <laughs> so uh, every, yeah, ever since I was little, I was, uh, I was really into games. And basically by the time I graduated high school and uh, joined the army in, in 1987, I was like, you know, definitely hardcore into gaming at that point. Um, and in addition to like playing games for fun, uh, you know, as they were, I, you know, as I said, I'd love to like modify games, dabble with like changing the rules, et cetera. And, uh, 
um, you know, making, uh, whether it be like making new, uh, new factions in, you know, in existing uh, uh, games or, you know, messing with uh, point values and systems where I didn't feel like their, you know, their stats were right or, you know, all those sorts of things. That's, that's, that was sort of the, how I got into, you know, loving games uh, in, uh, in the first place. And my transition to making games, basically becoming a game designer, uh, was a many year process. So basically, I, uh, when I got, when I, I was in the army for a, a few years, and when I got out, I had the, the, one of the reasons I uh, joined up was for the GI Bill. Um, and I ended up going to Northeastern University in Boston and studying electrical engineering. And I had, uh, you know, we had game groups and um, played some, uh, uh, some board games and, and a lot of role playing games. And the basically the, the game that really sort of changed the landscape for me was uh, Magic the Gathering. I remember I was at the Gen Con where Magic the Gathering was released uh, when it came out, and I paid very little attention to it. Like I heard about it and someone described it to me and I was like, wow, that sounds like the biggest scam I've ever heard of. Like, okay, everybody go out and spend money and whoever spends the most gets to win this game. That's, that seems like the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And just, you know, I just like dismissed it immediately. Well, at least games don't do that nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, basically I got, you know, I I came back from Gen Con and my, you know, was uh, hanging out with one of my game buddies and he was like, and a friend of his who was actually a game reviewer said like, you guys really check out magic. And we both were like, no, that's, that's, that, that game sounds ridiculous. And the guy was like, no, check out magic. So we were like, okay. So we went to the game store and we each, we decided, all right, we're each going to spend like, uh, can't remember what it was like 20 bucks or something. We're basically buying a starter deck and two booster packs. And that was it. We we're just going to buy that much and play the game. And we played it and the game was phenomenal. We really, we really enjoyed it. And, uh, and it was really great two player, which is, you know, that's, that's a rare feature in, was a rare feature in games at the time. Like basically most board games really wanted like three or four or five people to play role-playing games. You wanted larger groups. So like a really good two player game with, uh, you know, the fantasy feel was, was, uh, was an awesome thing. And yeah, we just got hooked into, uh, into, uh, into magic. And the th- a thing that really got me into it was, I enjoyed collecting things. So I had like, you know, I had collected like trading cards for like uh, comic books and that sort of thing. So the fact that they had these cards with cool art that I could collect, I got really into that. And, uh, and I wanted to put together a set of, uh, of the, of magic cards. So I went out to buy a, uh, a box of boosters, which is a, uh, this was a big purchase, uh, for me. Um, cause you know, I was a, uh, student on the GI bill. So, you know, scraping together enough money for, for a full box was, uh, was a big deal, but I went ahead and, you know, I got it cause I really wanted to put a full set together. And then I opened up, you know, opened up all the packs and sorted the cards and then was disappointed to find out that, Hey, I, I don't have a set. I'm missing a whole bunch of, of, uh, individual cards. Then I did some digging into it, figured out their rarity scheme, which was uh, basically that particular set had three print sheets that they used, a, a common and uncommon and a rare print sheet. Each were 11 by 11, so I had 121 cards on it. And basically doing out the math, it was like, oh, this, you know, just to get the very last card when you're missing just a single rare card, 
on average, you'd have to open 121 packs to get it, which uh, was, I think there were like uh, 36 packs in the display. So, uh, um, so just, you know, huge amounts of, uh, of sort of raw purchasing necessary to uh, complete a set, which uh, I did not have the finances for. Uh, so I actually started selling individual cards to earn money to buy more packs of, uh, of cards. Um, basically there was a, there's a gaming group at MIT. Uh, MIT is across, across the Charles river, uh, from, uh, from Northeastern. I fill up my, my big backpack with my magic cards and I go over to the, uh, the magic game night that they had, uh, 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 at MIT, and I would offer to sell individual cards while I, you know, while I was playing there. And I also posted cards online. There was a uh, MTG-L, I think it was. There was a there was like a web, uh, a site for that talked about magic, and I posted cards that I had for sale there with information on, you know, how to how to buy them from me. And as far as I know, I was the first person to ever do that. I specifically remember when I saw another person post cards for sale online and thinking to myself, Hey, that's my thing. <laughs> but, uh, but I basically ended up making a ton of money selling, um, uh, cards. So basically because the cards were so hard to find, uh, and people would want see an individual card and want it. I ended up being able to sell like the, the, uh, uncommons and, and the rare card that came in a pack for like three or four times the cost of the pack uh, by you know selling off the individual cards. And often I could even sell common cards uh, as well. And basically I just did this iteration of buying, you know, selling my, selling my extra cards, buying new packs uh, and, you know, just, you know, repeating that process over and over again. And it got to the point where I had a pretty big, uh, was, was doing a lot of dollars in, uh, in, in sales, making a bunch of money doing this. And to the point where the money I was earning jeopardized my, some of my scholarships and grants that were need-based. And, <laughs> and, That's a good problem to have, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> and at the same time, I was discovering, wow, I really love the math and the physics in, uh, in engineering. But I, when I, you know, got to my, my third year, uh, in college, I started, uh, you know, my third year at Northeastern is a five-year program where you basically are doing your working, uh, internships, um, every other, you know, every half the year. So they have like a four quarter system. And I discovered eh, this, you know, the, the closer I got to the act, the actual engine work I'd be doing as an engineer, the more I discovered, well, this, this isn't as engaging for me. And I was trying to figure out what to do because in the, you know, pure math or, or physics, we pretty much required a PhD to do anything meaningful. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of years of education. So I wasn't sure if that was the path I wanted to go. So I was basically trying to figure out what to do with my life. And, uh, and then, you know, then college was going to get a lot more expensive. So I decided to take some time off from school. And at the same time, basically Wizards of the Coast changed their policy and said, Hey, if you want to order large quantities of magic cards, you need a store. You can't, you, you need a brick and you need a brick and mortar store. We're not gonna, we're not gonna sell large quantities to online, uh, uh, we're not going to allow large quantities to be sold to online retailers anymore. So I decided, 
you know what, I'm going to open up a game store. I'm going to use it as a, a place to hang out and play games with my friends and basically do work my online business. So basically pack up cards and ship them out to people and take orders. And sure, if someone happens to walk in the door, you know, I'll sell them card over the, sell them cards and stuff over the counter. Uh, so basically I, I was, as I said, I was into Warhammer. So I got a bunch of Warhammer miniatures and I had a, just a ridiculous collection of magic cards. And I rented a little space above a Chinese restaurant in a, uh, a place called Davis Square Somerville, which was uh, next to Tufts University. It was on the red line, which has Harvard and MIT. And um, there's a ton of, you know, just a huge uh, population of gamer age people. As it turned out, uh, I one of the MIT game nights, um, there was someone there doing an article on magic. Uh, and that person was, you know, interviewing various people. And one, one friend of mine said, oh, you should talk to Rob. He's op- he, he's really into magic. He's opened up a game store. So the guy came and talked to me. And I talked about, you know, like the fact that I was going to be opening up the game store, et cetera. And the day that I opened up my store, the um, this guy's article came out. And it was on the front page of one of the sections of the Boston Globe. This is really big paper. And there was like a big picture of people playing magic and that, you know, on the top of the section and in the article, it, you know, when it, it about halfway through the article, it, he, he had the section where he was talking to me and it said, Rob Doherty, who's opening up a game store today in Davis Square, Somerville. So what ended up happening was tons of people had read this article who were into magic because, oh, cool, I'm into this game. And there's a picture on the newspaper about it. And they read this article and then they started looking for this mysterious game store that was opening up that day. So what I planned on having be a, basically a, a hangout location for my friends and a place to run an online business, we just got swamped with people. And I had this insane collection of magic cards because I had been, you know, running stuff from early on. And that led to just tons of people coming in and buying <laughs> crazy amounts of stuff. Uh, so basically, my online business just disappeared because you know, like I needed every bit of my inventory to handle the, uh, the, uh, the sales in person. And I ended up uh, basically with a very successful game store in the Boston area. And, uh, and that's what I ended up doing for, for several years. And in the process of being there at a game store all the time, I worked on games on my own games as a hobby and would play them over the counter with people. Uh, and then uh, at a certain point, I decided, you know what, I want to try publishing these games. And uh, I really liked doing things myself. I didn't want to take the game and, uh, games I was designing and try and find a buyer for them. I wanted to make them myself and try and sell them myself. And uh, so I started out with a project, uh, uh, a product called double-sided tokens. Basically, I wanted to learn the manufacturing process. So, and I sold a lot of magic cards and uh, my store had a magic team and uh, I, you know, and uh, we did very well on the magic professional circuit. And so basically I had a lot of people knew me from magic and I had a ton of magic players at my store. Um, and I knew people in the magic community all, you know, you know, well, uh, worldwide basically. And uh, at the time, Magic had a lot of cards which generated token, like little little creatures. So basically, maybe you had a card that would put like three soldier tokens into play. 
and you could use anything you wanted, like a scrap of paper or anything to represent a uh, soldier token. But the company itself made uh, really pretty soldier tokens with, you know, art, uh, art on them. And they would give them away as part of their uh, organized play program. Um, and as a store owner, I would buy these from people and resell them. And like individual token cards were selling for like two, three, four, five dollars um, for, you know, basically a card that said soldier or squirrel or bear or whatever the various things that uh, um, could be created in the game. And I realized, hey, you know, I can't make magic cards. Those are, you know, there's a lot of copyrights and trademarks and stuff involved. But something that says bear on it and has a picture of a bear, I can totally make that. So I basically hired hired artists and made uh, and a graphic designer made made uh, token cards uh, for for all the non copywritten uh, things that were generated, all the non copywritten stuff that were tokens in uh, in the Magic the Gathering game at the time, and basically made a magic accessory and um, uh, found you know basically found a printer and you know worked through the whole process of of uh, creating the product and. Uh, um, and then I went to the, uh, the Gamma Trade Show and I, I showed off the product there and I talked, you know, and I, I basically knew a bunch of game store owners from being a game store owner. And I knew a bunch of tournament organizers from being a big tournament player and also running a lot of tournaments myself. So basically I had a bunch of contacts and was able to uh, sell quite a number of, uh, of, uh, of, these, uh, of these tokens. The, the project made a very small profit, but it was, you know, it's mildly profitable. Um, but it was a great learning exercise because basically I learned all the steps along the way. And that basically gave me the confidence to then start working on taking some of the games that I had, uh, I had designed myself and with friends and going through the process of, of, uh, of creating those. Um, and actually my first game company I did with a friend, uh, Chad Ellis, um, and we named the game company after my game store. So it was uh, Your Move Games Incorporated was the name of the game company. And we made uh, several different games, all of which were super fun, and but not particularly financially successful. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was uh, sort of a, a step along the way of the learning process. So that's my very long-winded answer of how I got <laughs> into uh, <laughs> uh, making games. Gotcha. All right. And so a few things I want to unpack there. And, and one of them is leveraging your experience and gaining a little more experience and then trying a new thing and then gaining a little more experience and trying a new thing. But it's all on the same path. I feel like a lot of times creative people, and I know I struggle with this personally, is you want to jump around to totally different things. Okay, I want to write a book. Okay, I want to design a game. Okay, I want to make a movie. Okay, I want to start a YouTube channel. And that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is you are constantly having to start from zero or almost zero and build things from the ground up versus what you were doing. You were basically starting from zero and then you were at one and then you were at three and then you were at six and you've just kind of like worked your way up the ladder. And I love that you started small, literally just selling individual cards and you're like, okay, well, I guess I have to open a game store and you open a game store. And then, but anyway, you, you were like going down this path that was a wide path. You were doing different things, but it was still on the same path. <laughs> and I think that's really smart, just from a business standpoint, to have a little more focus than sometimes people do. And again, I'm definitely counting myself in that that category of constantly jumping around and trying new things that are different, but just leveraging. Me, I wasn't making intentional 
decisions on that path until the double-sided tokens uh, um, game accessory project. That was a very intentional, hey, I want to make games one day, but I need to learn how to produce stuff first. So instead of trying to make a game, let me make an accessory. Let me start small and take a step along the way. Now, as it turned out, the experience I had uh, as a store owner before that was, you know, was super useful and being and selling cards, both person in person and online that I did before that was, you know, all these were very useful steps along the way, but basically I sort of realized, Hey, I can, I can, uh, uh, make these paths converge. Um, you know, at basically at that point when I, when I took on that, uh, that particular project. I was like, you know, what I really want to do long term is make games. I've got this experience that's useful. Let's let's move the you know let's move the ball in that direction. Uh, so, uh, uh, but those other, those early steps were basically, you know, I just were sort of fumbled into. <laughs> well, hey, whether by hook or by crook, man, you know, it just I think again, if someone is going to listen to this and look back over like what they could do, I think if they could, and this is something I talk to people all the time about. If, if you can be more intentional with your time and your effort and your learnings and things like that than I was, as I just kind of stumbled my way through and like looking back, said, I wish I had talked to someone when I was 20 and had a more intentional you know viewpoint on things than I did, then because I would be further along than I am now. And so I'm just trying to help people, you know, if they can look at this kind of stuff and go, oh, OK, this is how Rob did it, whether he meant to or not. If I can be a little more intentional in the way I am approaching these similar things, then I can actually surpass Rob, where he was at my age and, and things like that. Oh, and that's, sure, yeah. that's always the way I'm, way I'm looking at it. And I love how you were able to leverage the people you knew because you gained all this, these these contacts and you knew people and they knew you. And then you were able to kind of turn that eventually into a card game company that's, you know, it's not dissimilar to Magic. It's not Magic by any stretch of imagination. Right. But like if you like Magic, you're probably going to like Star Realms. I don't know why you wouldn't. And so you could bring your clout and your credibility into the company and say, hey, this is who I am. Here's the other people on the team. Here's who they are in the Magic community. Check out this other game. I think you'll like it. And people are like, oh, okay. Yeah, let's do that. And then it blows up and, and turns into this amazing thing. And so talk to me about uh, Star Realms a little bit. You know, I had Darwin Castle, who's one of the main designers on, on for that game. He was on the show a while back. And we, we got to chat about the, the Genesis and what he was doing and things like that. But tell me from your perspective about the the genesis of Star Realms and then how it just kind of took off from there. Sure. So basically, I I, I went through several different uh, game companies and had you know, various levels of success. Like basically, a lot of the stuff that the games that uh, that uh, that we made, people really liked. But, you know, there was always, uh, you know, something missing, marketing, a lot of times artwork, you know, budgets were, you know, were challenging. Um, so, you know, a lot of the project looked very indie and so people would have to get past that and to get to the gameplay, etc. My first really big financial success was a game called Ascension, which is a deck building game uh, that was made by uh, um, Justin Gary uh, and myself. And this is one of those scenarios where you know the, the the many steps along the path so i had run tournaments for um uh for magic and for pokemon and for Yu-Gi-Oh and you know a bunch of things so i had experience running tournaments i had my game stores i was making various products one of the products i made was 
a, uh, a trading card game uh, called Epic, and I was running a tournament for this uh, for this game. And my friend Justin Gary, who really loved Magic and games like it, you know, played you know played my trading card game. He really he really loved it. And I was running a tournament for my game in Florida, and he lived in that area, so he wanted to come out and play in the tournament. And I had rented a like a house and had my uh, family there for uh, you know, for when I came down to run the tournament, and uh, he came and, and stayed with me, and we were talking about game stuff, and we talked about this new game that came out, which was called Dominion, and it used this you know this deck building, uh, you know this new deck building engine concept, and we were talking about how brilliant that that game concept was, and then we talked about all the stuff we didn't like about um, the way Dominion played, where basically as a very advanced card player. Often you'd sit down and like the cards get laid out for Dominion. You'd be like, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and put that to get get deck together. And all these other things are terrible. And, you know, and basically either other people didn't see that combination or they did. And you were all racing for the same deck. And, you know, so there were, there were some areas where there was some stuff in it we didn't love, but overall we thought, oh, this is brilliant. And then we started talking about things that we would do differently with that kind of engine. And basically at some point I was like, you know, Justin, we have enough that's different here. We could make our own game. And Justin at the time had been working for Upper Deck Entertainment and he had a lot of experience uh, with working in uh, with with games. I had experience self-publishing. And so, you know, so we made uh, the Ascension board game together and that game really took off, was a big hit. Um, and that was my first sort of big financially successful uh, game where it had a lot of clout to it. Uh, shortly after that, um, uh, Darwin, uh, my friend Darwin, and you know, we had worked together for, we had played together for years and years and years uh, in Magic. We were on the same um, professional Magic team together. He had managed my game store, uh, one of my game stores for me. He um, had worked with me in several of my game companies, and uh, and basically at, at one point, Upper Deck had was working on this game called Versus, and they were uh, looking to get uh, professional Magic players to help them with their game. Basically, come take a look and make sure it played okay. And basically, they ended up contacting uh, contacting me and and my. Flew my team, flew my team out to their headquarters, and we worked on their game. And they ended up hiring a bunch of our my guys, as, my my teammates as contractors. Darren had been one of those people. Um, some of them ended up getting, uh, you know, uh, like full time work. So Darren had sort of been in the world of making game, basically making games and working at game companies for a while, and he really wanted to like work, do that work full time. You know, he he was uh, um, he had done some. You know, he'd been a professional magic player. He had done some work for game companies and he had done some work as, you know, in sales, you know, just normal, you know, normal world sales, really wanted to design games as a full-time thing and was like looking for a job. And I was like, hey, you should design a game and then take it around to game companies and show it to them. And basically it can be, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, nothing, nothing boosts your resume, like a game that they, you know, that, that that's awesome that you made yourself and uh, say, and Darwin loved deck uh, Ascension in deck building, you know, deck building games in general and Ascension. And, and, uh, and so he went to work on making, uh, on making a deck builder Uh, and Star Realms was basically the game that he, uh, he crafted. 
um, and he took a, and he had an early version of it. He took it around to, uh, to various companies and, uh, and showed it off and he didn't get any takers. Like basically there, you know, like a, some level of interest, but, but nobody was like, you know, wow, I want to, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're either hiring him or wanting to buy the game. So, uh, I was like, well, let's, you know, let's, let's just work on it for a while. Do some, you know, do some, uh, development. Uh, so we got together and we basically did, uh, game development on star realms and just did iterative passes on, uh, on the game where basically take the game, change, you know, change a bunch of things, play, change a bunch of things, play, change a bunch of things, play. Uh, and this process was at, it was really fun to do with, uh, with Darren because we had been working together on, uh, a, you know, as, uh, in for many, many years, including like a decade of doing, uh, of play testing for professional level play of magic. And, and basically that process where we would test decks and magic, we would do like quick iterate, if we play, we do quick iterations, come back, play more. And so we had, we had developed a very quick method of working together on stuff like this. And, uh, and we were able to apply all that stuff to the development process of Star Realms and develop it at a lightning pace, making, you know, tons of changes very in very quick succession. And at some point in the process, I was like, you know, Darwin, this game's getting really good. We could just make this ourselves. And, uh, he was, you know, he was interested in this, but I was like, in the past, every time Darwin and I had worked together, he had been, I you know, had been on one of my projects, and he had been an employee. But like, I had the basically all my funds were tied up with the, um, or nearly all my funds were tied up with the uh, with uh, Stoneblade Entertainment in the Ascension, you know, the Ascension game, you know, stuff that was ongoing, and also, you know, this was a project that Darwin had started, you know, like the basic game he had started on his own. And I was like, you know, if we want to do this, I think we should do it as partners, you know, like we'll both scrape up, you know, however many pennies we can and give this a try. And he was excited about uh, doing that was and was, you know, basically, you know, tapped his, you know, his savings. I tapped, you know, my savings. We had um, Darwin had a uh, uh, an acquaintance who had. Uh, done a lot of online game work and had contacted Darwin about the possibility of like, you know, he was interested in, uh, in some of the games that I had designed previously. This guy by the name of Tanthor Jen and uh, Tan was a, a, a program, a, a programmer. And I had done the digital uh, work w- uh, with Justin to find a company to make the digital version of Ascension, which you know, was a you know, which was a kind of cool thing, uh, um, uh, and did uh, did a lot for our our marketing. So I was interested in having a digital version of Star Realms, and uh, and Tan was interested in coming on as a partner uh, with us and basically providing the digital expertise. And he had a graphic designer who he occasionally did some work with, and that you know uh, graphic designer was willing to come on and do graphic design work for a. Uh, a you know a small piece of ownership. So basically, we had a whole bunch of you know, we had four people just working on this the Star Realms project. Uh, 
Darwin and I literally out of my garage, I had a little office built above on the second floor of my garage uh, where, uh, where we worked on it. And we were able to, you know, the world was getting smaller as far as like the ability to do things online. We were able to hire artists uh, located in Asia and, uh, you know, get the, uh, get the art together uh, uh, for the game. And uh, we did that. We ended up doing that first Kickstarter for Star Realms. And in that, we leveraged name recognition of me and Darwin as Magic players. My uh, uh, work, on, my previous work on Ascension. And uh, I had also, you know, for my other work, I had been to, you know, I go to every single game convention, basically. Uh, and I had I made an early prototype of Star Realms and brought it around to game conventions. And in the evenings, I would meet up with people in the press and show them this Star Realms prototype. People played it and just loved it. And basically, so I, I did a thing, I did had done several interviews where people would, um, uh, I placed Star Realms with them and then they'd, they'd spend several minutes raving about how much they love the game. And then they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. And then they'd turn on their cameras and then they'd interview me about, you know, about the game. And after a few of these, I realized, I sort of saw the pattern and I basically asked them, hey, this may sound kind of weird, but is it okay if I record you after we play? And they were like, okay. Um, so basically I, uh, I then had all these people who were interviewing me about the, you know, basically checking out this new game I was making, but I ended up getting video of them talking about how much they loved the game and we basically used that in our Kickstarter, in our first Kickstarter video, and uh, and that Kickstarter was super successful. We raised like I think it was like fifty grand, um, which was huge at the time. And based on that success, I increased our first print run from uh, I think I had uh, we, we were doing three thousand units, which was a lot, and I upped it to ten thousand units, which I basically felt was insane because uh, that just, uh, was a very large number for a brand new company, and that. That quantity actually sold out uh, before you know, before the stuff actually hit hit the shore. So basically, when the when the first wave of product uh, arrived, every single unit was spoken for. So we you know, we fulfilled the Kickstarter and we you know sold into distribution and we just sold out immediately. In that first year, we did I believe it was four print runs. We did the fifteen a uh, fifteen thousand, a twenty thousand, a thirty thousand, I think, and then a sixty thousand unit print run. In that first year, just trying to catch up to the, uh, you know, the demand, which was crazy, crazy high. Wow. Now, real quick, from a business standpoint, what do you think? I mean, obviously, it's a great game and you got to have a great game if it's going to sell a bazillion copies. But like, there's more to it than that. And so what are what are some of the other things that like really uh, you, you would say have a, have had a hand in being able to sell hundreds and hundreds and, and maybe over a million copies at this point of Star Wars? Uh, so um, so early on starting out, so. Step one is getting the word about the game out there in the first place. So that's that's going to be the biggest challenge whenever you're bringing a new product uh, out. Um, as I said, we had several existing advantages, um, both being both Darren and I being Hall of Fame Magic players. We had a lot of contacts um, and a lot of people knew of us, and we were both like writing articles and such uh, uh, for Magic. So basically, we had some eyeballs on us from the get go. There, um, you know. Neither of us are masters of social media or anything, but uh, but you know we had decent numbers of you know like thousands of people who 
who, who followed us, which, you know, at the time was pretty decent, not, you know, not insane, but, but pretty solid. But also I had had a lot of experience making of getting games into, into distribution for my previous companies. And basically what I did was make call up, uh, call up game, uh, distributors arrange to, you know, basically ask, Hey, can I come out and meet with your guys and show them this thing, fly out to, wherever the, you know, wherever their sales team was, uh, um, and meet with the, you know, show the game to the, to the sales reps and, you know, and basically play it with them and talk about why the game was going to be, you know, why the game was, would do really well and why they should recommend it to their stores. And basically I did that with like all the, the major, uh, with all the major distributors, uh, and Kickstarter itself, uh, is huge as a marketing tool. Like, Basically, um, every game, everything that I've put out on Kickstarter does better in initial store sales than things that don't, that I have not put on Kickstarter. It's a little counterintuitive. And basically, there was a period where game store owners hated Kickstarter. Like when I'd meet them at uh, like a, like, uh, uh, a trade show like Gamma or ACD Games Day or something, and I'd be talking to retailers, they'd be, they were not happy with anything that we were putting out on Kickstarter. And basically they viewed every single Kickstarter sale as a loss, a direct loss for them. Cause they're like, that guy would have bought that game from me. Um, and that may have been the case, but with, a, with individual customers or may not, but what ended up, what ends up happening is with a Kickstarter, you get anyone who's willing to back the Kickstarter is someone who's willing to give money in advance for a game site unseen, um, just by a description. That level of enthusiasm is in games is is obviously very high, and if someone's willing to do that, and the big advantage of it is they get the game first, they get it early. That person, you better believe they're going to play that game early because they spent all that money and waited all that time, and they finally get it. They're going to open it up and play it, and if they like it when they they're gonna uh, and they they're showing it to their friends, they basically become a demoer for you. Like if you had a game that you were coming out and you could find somehow a thousand enthusiastic people who loved your game and you could give them a free copy and they could go play it with their friends and play it at their local game store, that would be an amazing marketing thing to do. Basically, Kickstarter does that, except they pay you and uh, and basically they find you as well. So basically you put your game out on Kickstarter. If your Kickstarter is successful, you have found the people who are backing it are people who are excited about your game conceptually and are so sort of predisposed to the genre and the general mechanics of your game. And if you do a good job and they, when they get the game, they like it, they're going to be showing it to everybody because they're the first kid on the block who has it. And that's sort of the big advantage of them being a Kickstarter backer is they got to be that, get that game early. So they'll play it with a bunch of people show it to everybody and people will who like who play that game and like it are going to go to their game store and say, Hey, do you have this? Or, or I hear this is coming out, you know, uh, and you get it. So basically having a, you know, having a success, having a successful Kickstarter can lead to incredible, uh, an incredible marketing boost for your game. If, and only if <laughs> the Kickstarter backers like the game when they get it. Um, but, uh, so Star Realms had all that going for it. It had, you know, we had, we basically were able to leverage our name recognition, both from as professional magic players and, 
Uh, and I had, you know, I had a little, some, some success as a game designer, uh, uh, previously. So we were able to leverage that. I had made products previously and gotten them into distribution. And I basically did the, the, the same legwork that I had done for previous games of going out to distributors and showing them, you know, showing them the stuff. And then the, that, you know, that, that Kickstarter element added in. And additionally, we had taken some pretty big risks with Star Realms, the biggest of which was the box and price point. Uh, so basically, previously, every deck building game that had been made was put in a large box. You know, some like I had put a board in Ascension, a board wasn't necessary, but I really wanted to put a physical board in there to separate it out from the trading card games because I was worried with like, with Ascension with Justin Gary and Brian Kibler and myself on the on the team for Ascension, I was worried people would think it was a trading card game and trade marketing trading card games is much harder than marketing board games. So I put a board in Ascension literally to say, hey, look, it's a board game. It's got a board. <laughs> but uh, uh, but with Star Realms, we ended up basically building the game we like as the way we like to play it. So with a lot of deck building games, what Darren and I would do would be take the big game out of its big box take one of our magic de- the gathering deck boxes uh, and put the game, put the cards for the game in there and then leave all that other junk we really didn't need out. And then just, and be able to carry this, you know, the a deck building game in with our, you know, in with our magic cards when we're going to a magic tournament or going over to a friend's house or whatever. So basically star realms, we end up making the actual packaging for the game like that. And the, Big danger. There's, there's there's several problems with that plan. Um, one problem is uh, is shelf space. Like the 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 your biggest marketing for for a product is its shelf presence. Like basically, if when somebody walks into store and they see a game on the shelf and that game looks cool, um, they're more likely to buy it. The bigger the box, the more space you have on that shelf to sort of grab somebody's eyeballs. Um, Star Realms, very small box, so not grabbing a lot of, of eyeballs from that perspective. Two, it looks like a trading card game. It looks like a deck of a starter deck for magic or something. And people are pretty hesitant to try new trading card games because trading card games require massive financial investment. And usually you can't play very well out of that first individual box. So that's a little bit scary. And then the biggest sort of downside of it is while people are not willing to pay $40 for a small deck of cards, they're willing to pay $40 for a big box, big box board game. Now, if you take the same set of cards and put it into a, like a back tray in a, uh, a um, and maybe you add a board to the game, or maybe not, maybe you just have areas to sort the cards, then someone's willing to pay $40 for it. You take away the big box and you put it into a small deck, they're not willing to pay $40 for it. And uh, even though all the game component cards that matter are still there, you still spent the exact same amount of money on the artwork and on the, on all the production, on the, uh, uh, the game development, et cetera. Um, so basically we took what could have been easily sold as a $40 game and we put it in a tiny package and charged $15 for it. And our margin per unit was fine, like because printing a deck of cards is, is inexpensive. But if you sell, sell, like most games that come out, sell, you know, a few hundred or maybe a couple thousand units. And, you know, at, at a $15 price point, that doesn't add up to a lot of money to pay those art bills, etc. Um, so basically, we took a gamble 
on this small package, small price point. And that ended up being huge because basically people would pick up the game almost as an afterthought because the price was so incredibly low. Like if it's a physical game and it was less than $20 at the time, it was like, wow, this thing's practically free. Uh, That ended up being uh, a huge factor in the success of Star Realms, the fact that it was so incredibly inexpensive and people were like, you know, um, know, instead of like one person in the game group getting a copy of the game, basically everybody in the game group would get it because, heck, it was only 15 bucks. Right. But you bring up a good point. You're going to need a certain critical mass of sales to be able to actually go forward and have a, a company built on that game, you know, that cheap of a game as a foundation. And so, yeah, you were taking a risk, man, but uh, I'm glad it worked out. I want to go back and and talk about Kickstarter for just a minute, because nowadays, I mean, that's just the thing. If you want to start a company, go to Kickstarter. And so everything at this point that I see online is basically how to, from the beginning, have Kickstarter in mind. That way you can raise a bunch of money. You can launch your company, launch whatever game that you're working on and you know life will just be rainbows and butterflies but <laughs> kickstarter isn't just perfect and so you know you already mentioned a lot of the good sides a lot of the pros about kickstarter what are some of the downsides what are some of the drawbacks the negatives that you've run into over the years from running kickstarter campaigns from building a lot of your company on kickstarter campaigns sure so uh so there's a lot of potential downfalls for kickstarter um uh our current company have we've been able to avoid a lot of them but we did have i did you know uh, have some experience with some of the downfalls in at Stoneblade, the the, um, uh, the company that makes that uh, makes Ascension, and basically uh, it boils down to being careful with what you're uh, with what you're delivering, what you're adding. One, there's a lot of excitement around Kickstarters, and especially when you're running one, and you know, and you've reached your funding goal, and you're and you're trying to, you know, and you're getting more people coming in and you, and you, you know, and there's a lot of pressure to put up really cool stretch goals. And, uh, and basically backers do not understand the costs um, uh, involved with production and shipping, et cetera. Um, And, uh, and they basically, they just see the dollars coming in. And if a, if as a game producer, the person running the Kickstarter, if you're not careful, you can really, really screw yourself over. So, uh, for example, um, people might say, "Hey, you've got this card game, you know, and you know, you're you've you had a goal of ten thousand, and you're almost at twenty thousand dollars. You should, you know, we should have a deck box as a stretch goal, and you know, maybe everybody in the comment section is like, "Yeah, yeah, a deck box. Let's do a deck box." And a person running a Kickstarter might be like, "Oh, sure, I'll do a deck box. That sounds like a great stretch goal." Unless they put it up, and then. The thing that they're not realizing is that oh, the you know maybe the production cost on their card game uh, is two dollars a unit, but the production cost for this deck box add-on that they uh, are put on there is a dollar per unit. Um, so now their production costs have gone up by fifty percent, and oh, now instead of one deck box uh one one deck of cards now they have a deck of cards and a deck box and now their package has passed the size limit for some of the cheapest shipping options so maybe you know three dollars per unit has been added to uh, the shipping costs and oh the all the card games you were producing would have fit into one container coming from China, but now these deck boxes are actually slightly larger than the than the card game you're making because it has to fit inside it. So now you need two and a half containers. Uh, so your your uh, your freight costs have gone up 
massively. And oh, wait, now you instead of needing you know twenty pallets to hold all your games, now you need fifty pallets to hold up hold all your games. So your storage costs have gone up dramatically. So basically, there are just this huge flow of unseen costs uh, behind uh, certain uh, certain decisions, the things that you might you know choose to add. So when putting together a uh, like think something like a stretch goal, you want to think about what are the players going to love, what are the people going to be excited by, but also you want to think about what are your costs. If you're adding an incremental cost, a cost that's going to be added to every single unit, you're going to subtract that times the number of backers, and you not only have to subtract the production cost, but you also have to subtract the extra shipping costs and the extra pick fees from the fulfillment centers, the extra storage costs, and the extra basically add up all those extra costs. You can end up with a scenario where by adding something on as this sort of freebie extra that, you know, to get people a little more excited to push you toward that next stretch goal, you go from making you know, $2 per backer to losing 20 cents per backer. So basically at the Kickstarter as a whole actually loses you money because by the time you pay for the printing and the shipping and the packing and the, and the, and the boxes and the, all the elements to, to get the thing in the person's hand at the end of the day, your costs exceed what the backer was paying you. Um, so, you know, there are scenarios where people like literally like lose their house uh, to, to to fulfill uh, the Kickstarter. So this thing that was supposed to be bringing in revenue for them ends up, well, it brings in cash, does bring in some initial revenue, but it, but it, it saddles them with higher costs than they were taking into consideration. So basically, you know, the answer to that is when designing stretch goals, think about things that have high value for the user and low cost for you. So for example, you could invest in some art. And while that may be expensive, like, oh, I have to pay this artist like $600 to do this nice art art piece. It has no production cost and it has no shipping cost. So basically you can just put that nicer piece of artwork on the card that was already going to have some artwork on it. So you just change out an art file. And so you have to pay that, that, that fee of dollars one time. And, you know, and it's a, it's a, it, the expense is, uh, the expense is complete or, like for a card game, promo cards are fantastic because people really love to have promo cards, and and it gives them something you know really cool that they can uh, they can show off. But your um, your per unit production cost on an individual card is very low, and the additional shipping cost on a card is very low, and the additional volume for the box and the additional weight, all the things that would affect all those little cost modifiers as you go up, are all very small. So basically. Um, thinking about things that I can, you can add, which the customers will love, uh, which won't increase your incremental costs a ton, uh, is, is key. And then, you know, those things that do increase your incremental costs, you can still give them to backers. You just have to make them an add-on where the person's like, oh, I want this deck box. I will pay an extra, you know, $5 plus, you know, $4 in shipping to, you know, to cover the costs for this thing. And then they can self-select whether they, uh, you know, whether they want it or not. So that is, uh, that is a big factor. Another uh, thing about Kickstarter uh, it, it, that has gotten to be more and more the case is that um, it's not really Kickstarter anymore. Like basically, you know, initially 
the sort of concept behind Kickstarter is, hey, bring your idea here, show it to people, show your concept to people, and then and they can help you start your project, you know, give you money to get started. So, hey, I'll get money from Kickstarter and then I can use it to go out and buy art and do all these things to make the product, uh, you know, to make this product that I am envisioning. Well, basically stuff that is on Kickstarter has gotten more and more and more polished over time. And basically, if it doesn't look like a finished product when it's coming to Kickstarter, it's going to have a really hard time succeeding. So a lot of those sort of initial costs, which Kickstarter could, you know, like Kickstarter of old could potentially help with, it's it's much more challenging uh, to uh, be able to, um, uh, to get funded without you know, for example, having that really nice artwork to show off on your Kickstarter page. So, you know, that's, uh, uh, so you have a little, for a new creator, you have a little bit of a cart and horse problem. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, you can get around that by investing in, you know, a third of the art that you're going to need enough to sort of show what the game will look like, but not, you know, the complete, complete pool, but it's not going to be, a successful, like a successful Kickstarter, can't take you from uh, from a, a pencil sketch to uh, you know to finished product. You really need to come to Kickstarter with a with a much more polished uh, prototype. Yeah, absolutely. I mean the the competition on Kickstarter at this point is just mind boggling. Just from where it was a couple of years ago, two three years ago, it wasn't anywhere near what it is today, and it's only going to get more challenging as these big companies again come in with big budgets and and big ideas and big IPs and stuff like that. But at the same time, if you are good enough, I feel like you can still rise to the top and, uh, and, and get, you know, a game launched, a company launched. It's just challenging, but I, I want to go back Absolutely, just for a yeah. second and, and talk about how you, you mentioned success ruining people basically like their Kickstarter doing too well and they're adding too many stretch goals and too many cool things that they wanted to you know give the backers. And then that actually uh, ruined them. And you gotta be careful. I, I've seen success ruin a lot of people, unfortunately. And uh, it's always something you got to, you got to have a good plan going into the project saying, hey, here's what we're going to offer. We're not going to diverge from this. You know, if, if a really cool idea comes along, OK, we'll talk about it. We'll talk to the manufacturer, but we're going to slow play this. We're going to you know, undersell and over deliver versus the opposite. <laughs> and so, yeah, just being smart with your business. Don't get caught up in the moment. It's really easy to get super excited with, you know, along with your backers. And that's that's all wonderful. But basically, don't make a business decision without looking at your costs like that and all your costs like basically uh you know your printing cost is not your costs that's one of your costs so uh you gotta you know like look at the big picture when you're you know when you're when you're doing stuff like that yeah absolutely and one thing that really helped me a while back was understanding okay the art cost now transfer that into the unit cost because a lot of times you think of just the production it's like okay this costs five dollars per unit to manufacture. Cool. Yeah. But how much is the art? Now the art adds another dollar to that because of its cost. Sure. You know, you're doing 3000 units and you know whatever. And so now, or, you know, you might have a $10,000 art budget. Okay. Well that just added several dollars to your per unit cost and then the shipping. And then there's like taxes. Like there's so many things that make the individual unit costs go up and you just have to be aware of the margin in between. Otherwise you are going to accidentally screw yourself over thinking, Oh, it was only $5 to manufacture. No, it was actually $12 to manufacture because of everything else they got thrown on top of it. And now, uh, some of those costs are one-time costs, which are, if your game is successful, then you're going to get to, when you go to print it again, 
depending on how you did your art contracts, if you just did a, hey, I'll give you X dollars and I now own this piece of art, which is a pretty standard way to do it. In that scenario, okay, the art costs are now paid. So basically when you, if you just make a thousand units and that's all you ever end up making, which frankly, that sort of thing is usually the case. You, most games do not get a reprint, um, you know, but, uh, uh, but if you do, if you are successful and you do sell all your copies and you go back and you print more under that scenario, those initial costs, the, you know, the, the, pay, the, the money that you paid to your game designers, the money you paid to your game developers, the money you paid to your, uh, uh, to your artists, the money you paid to your graphic designers, all those, all that money that you spent basically setting up the print files that the, that the, the factory needed in order to print the game. Those are one-time costs. So basically if you end up reprinting, you don't have to pay them again. So one of the things to think about if you're a new, uh, if you're, if you're making a new project and you're, you're, uh, coming at the first time is what are your goals? If your goal is, Hey, I'm going to make 2000 units of this game. And I want to make a little, I want that process itself to be profitable. Then you need to, uh, as you know, as you talked about, you need to add in all those costs to your unit cost, and then figure out what your MSRP has to be from there in order to make that profitable. If you're like, Hey, I am, I'm swinging for the fences and I'm trying to make, you know, uh, the next, uh, uh, settlers of Catan, and I'm going to sell, you know, I want to sell millions of units, then you can say, hey, I'll, I'll do this first print run at a loss. And I know it's at a loss. And I'm basically saying, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, if I sell everything, I end up losing $5,000 and that's a, or $20,000 or $50,000, whatever that amount of money is. And you're like, okay, this is how much money I'm paying to swing for the fences. Um, and I'm just making this game, this, this is basically a proof of concept for this bigger product that I want to have, which is this, you know, this game that's going to be selling, you know, a million units. So you just print an amount that's enough to get the game out there and see if people really love it. And if they don't, okay, I lost a little bit of money, but if it, you know, but maybe you get this big success. So that's one approach you can take, or you can take the approach where, where you're trying to, you know, basically make that individual, hey, um, this print run is going to be profitable on its own. And obviously that'll have a very significant effect on what your final MSRP is going to be. Um, so with like, for example, with Star Realms, we basically put the pricing at the, you know, we're going to try and make something that sells a, b- a bazillion units. We got lucky. <laughs> we did sell a bazillion units, but, uh, but basically had we just sold a normal quantity, we would have lost money on the project, but you know, that's okay. You know, that's the, a, uh, um, as long as your eyes are open when you're going into it and you're not basically losing anything you can't afford to lose, uh, you know, you're okay. Oh, yeah, exactly. Don't, <laughs> don't be gambling with your uh, kid's college fund or, or something like that. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn, but, uh, just make sure it's, it's, if it is a, a learning moment that it's one you can come back from that yes. you haven't just absolutely sunk your life into a, uh, a really challenging place, especially if you got kids and family and responsibilities. It's just a lot to think about. Sure. And so this is, this is in a lot of ways, a, a young person or a single person's uh, opportunity here where you don't have those things to think about and you can sleep on a friend's couch just in case. <laughs> so sometimes <laughs> it just is what it is. But uh, at the same time, one thing I find with having 
kids and a wife and a mortgage and things like that is it gives me more motivation uh, to make sure that I, I'm, I'm not going to fail uh, to Absolutely. basically say there is no safety net. Because if I if I don't do this correctly, if I don't do this well, then there's more people screwed than just me. And that extra pressure can be helpful. You know, not for everybody. I'm not saying that's everybody, but definitely for me, that has been a, a helpful thing. And so it's just uh, something to, like you said, have your eyes wide open going in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, yeah, I found the same thing. Like family is, uh, uh, family is very motivating for, you know, uh, for trying to be, to, for trying to be successful. Um, you know, cause you've got, you know, you got people who count on you and basically if you are successful and, you know, start ending up having employees, you end up feeling the same way there where the, the pressure of, Hey, you know, like, you know, if I screw up for myself, that's fine. But like, you know, these people are counting on me for their job. So, you know, that, that ends up having a sort of similar feeling to the, the family dynamic where you, uh, um, where basically there's extra pressure to be successful because of the people who are counting on you. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Let's say hypothetically wise wizard games tonight blows up, disappears, doesn't exist anymore. And now you have to start over from the ground up. What would you do? How would you do it? Is certain, is like a certain side of the market you'd go into? Would you stay in card games? Would you tell me like what you would do if unfortunately you had to begin again? I am something you had mentioned earlier, uh, was like leaning into your strengths and, uh, that is, you know, for me, uh, my strongest area is strategy games. Like I, you know, I, I, you know, have a background as a magic hall of famer and like, just, I love competitive strategy games. Um, I like, I really like playing games that are not a hundred percent skill, but have, uh, some level of randomness mixed in where you have to like intelligently manage the risk. Um, so for example, you know, magic is a deck of cards, which you shuffle and you have like various probabilities of certain things coming up. And as you're playing the game, you sometimes have to calculate the odds of your opponent having certain things or you having certain things and not all information is known. That kind of thing I really love personally. And generally speaking, you should be designing stuff that is your passion stuff that you love. Uh, it's just going to come out way better than if you sort of force yourself into, Oh, well, you know, like, it, you know, party games are popular. So I'm going to design a party game. Well, like if you're not passionate about it, it's probably not going to be a very good party game. So basically um, I would, I would probably stick with the, uh, the strategy game uh, area. Cause that's uh, a thing that I, I personally love. I would probably make a card game because I, I really love that as a, as a game designer, cards are such an awesome uh, uh, tool uh, because they are, they are able to, con- they're a game piece that can convey a ton of information. So one, they can be visually stunning. Like you have, a, you have space for artwork on it uh, so they can really set the mood of a game wonderfully. Um, there's room for rules text on a card. So basically you can have cards can do all kinds of stuff, uh, in, uh, in a game, you can have some core rules so that very simple things can convey a lot of information. So for example, a standard deck of playing cards, you've got, you know, numbers, letters, and, uh, and, and four different suits, you know, uh, and that is able to convey all the information that you need to be able to, you know, um, uh, to be able to 
play games, you know, from solitaire to bridge to poker. And uh, so basically with, you know, you can have uh, information portrayed through iconography or through just straight up text, which can, uh, can, can convey rules. Um, so basically you can do a ton, uh, with cards. So I, I love them as a game component and they are cheap to manufacture and, uh, and small, uh, so easy to ship. Uh, for those reasons, I would almost certainly, you know, do something in the strategy card game realm, uh, you know, exactly what, who knows, (laughs) but, uh, uh, but that's an area that, uh, you know, that's sort of an area where my strengths are. So I would, you know, I would, uh, uh, I would go into I would go into that area. I would certainly um, uh, do crowdfunding because uh, for the you know for the various reasons that I uh, you know that I stated before, um, I think that uh, you know that crowdfunding is a uh, you know is a really a really great way to go. And like basically, I this sort of this this sort of theoretical scenario you've laid out, I've kind of lived it in that basically I've I had several failed game companies before my successful game companies. So, uh, um, so I did things like, you know, I, I learned the value of, Oh, you know, having really good visuals in your game is actually super important. So, uh, and like figuring out proper marketing is super important on some of my early game projects. I was, only concerned with game mechanics or or almost entirely concerned with game mechanics might be a better way to say it and while the game the game has to be good for everything else to succeed the uh, you you know if people don't see your game or if when they glance at it it doesn't look appealing then you're they're never they're never going to try it to realize that they'd love the mechanics so basically you've got to you know you've got to work on those other pieces as well so you know i have at this point, I've had the uh, um, I have the power of past failures to, <laughs> to, to you know help guide me on the right path. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of people they just don't realize it takes ten years to be an overnight success. And a lot of times, when you see someone who quote unquote comes out of nowhere, really what it was was the fuse got lit on a loaded cannon, and they had spent years loading their cannon, and then finally the the right time happened, and that fuse got lit, and boom, you know something big came out of it. And so I think it's always important to be reminded of that. Well, Rob, this has yeah. been excellent. Uh, any kind of closing thoughts, anything you want to leave listeners with any kind of like lasting advice you would tell them if they're thinking about starting a games company or, or something like that. So the, the, the main thing that I tell people, if, if you're, if you're looking to self to start a game company, if you're looking to self publish a game, the game that you have should be, uh, extraordinary. Like when you show it to people, when you get people to demo, when you get, when you get people to play test for you at the end of the play test session that, you know, basically when they finish their first game, they should be wanting to play another. When it's time for them to leave the play test session, they should be asking you, Hey, do you have a copy of this? I can take, do you have files so I can print this at home? Like basically if they're not begging you to play more, you're not ready and you know keep working uh so if you basically when you ask somebody hey did you like the game and they say yes this game was great that's nice but that's not the feedback you're looking for you're looking for the person basically begging you to get a copy of the game like that's that's the true feedback that your game is great and that you have something that you should 
take to that ne- you know, that next level. That hey, you know, you sure you had to twist their arm to get them to try the game in the first place to play test to help give you some feedback, but once they played it, now they're twisting your arm to be able to play more. Like they realize, oh gosh, this is a play test copy. I'm not going to be able to play, get this game anywhere else. How the heck am I going to play this more? I have to play it more. That's what you're waiting for. Um, when you have that, then you can take, you know, you can take all those other steps. Um, there's going to be a ton of work and a ton of risk. Um, and if you, if you don't have that level of excitement on what, on the, on the thing that you're putting out there, then just keep working on it. You know, you don't, there's no reason for you to, to, to spend all that money and put all that, uh, you know, and take all that risk until you're at that stage. Awesome. Well, Rob, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with the continued progress of Wise Wizard Games and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?